Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 47 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And today we're interviewing Liz Lapla. And Liz is an ambassador for the PHC UK charity. And we have a really long episode for you. Um, but we felt that it was an episode worth listening to and didn't really warrant splitting up. So she covers so many different topics. So we, we thought you'd love to listen to how passionate she is and being a patient advocate and a lot of the challenges that she's come across and some of her personal story. It was great, wasn't it, Louise? And we actually didn't have to do very much because she was so happy chatting away. So she covered all the topics. We didn't even get to ask very many questions. So it was a really great episode and we had a really fun time with her. It was absolutely a real joy to to be able to interview Liz. And you're right. I mean, you know, her passion comes through loud and clear. And, yeah, so Jackie sort of said that normally when we have a long interview, we would typically sort of have it in a two-part. But because the conversation was so free-flowing and organic, we we knew that it was going to be really hard to sort of separate it. So that's why we've left it all in this one longer longer episode, which I hope that the listeners will enjoy. Yeah, and we hope that you listen through to the end because, you know, her story and her journey is is really worth, you know, sticking around and, and listening to. Louise, do you want to tell us a little bit about Liz? So Liz was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes about four years ago. And although she was overweight her whole life, she felt she was eating healthfully, as many people do. In line with those national guidelines, plenty of fruit and vegetables, healthy whole grains, low fat, fat free yogurt and margarines. Her GP prescribed medication for her diabetes, but she had read it that it was possible to put type 2 diabetes into remission without medication. And after a bit of research, she decided to follow Michael Mosley's eight week blood sugar diet. Lo and behold, within three months, she put her diabetes into remission and lost three stone, 42 pounds, nearly 20 kilos. She subsequently joined the Public Health Collaboration, the PHC UK, a national charity dedicated to informing and implementing healthy decisions for better public health. And two years ago, she started to run a low-carb course in her local GP surgery area. She's maintained her own remission from type 2 diabetes and the weight loss for almost four years by following a low-carb lifestyle and continues to help others as the passionate patient advocate to do the same. Let's hear from Liz. Welcome, Liz, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. 
And it's fabulous to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me. So we always ask our guests, where in the world are you? I'm in a place called Basingstoke in the UK. That's sort of, well, we're never quite sure whether we're southeast or southwest, but somewhere in the middle. Hmm. Yeah, I would say west because we're east. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> You're further west than we are. Yes. We tend to vary so, with the weather forecast. Sometimes we're east and sometimes we're west. So we're never quite sure which to follow. <laughs> so um, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about how you got into your low carb keto journey and what led you there? And usually we find that there's some one person or one thing that has really made that shift in you and made you open your eyes and see where you needed to go yeah well I suppose if we go right back it's probably about 12 14 years ago quite a long time ago now um I did have some routine blood tests done at the surgery and it came back with a slightly raised glucose uh, level. I think it must have done because they then sent me for a glucose tolerance test, which is sort of quite a refined test um, for diabetes. So they sent me off to do that and it came back negative. So fine and dandy, no problems. But around the same time, I also happened to hear a radio programme actually with um a celebrity chef who was saying that obviously chefs are likely to overeat and get overweight and whatnot. And his doctor had said that if he didn't do something about it, you know, he'd be diabetic and then that would be an issue, et cetera, et cetera. And he said he'd looked at sort of the glycemic index and eating foods that were low on the glycemic index. And I thought, you know, this makes sense. And I probably should do something to improve my diet. I did eat veg and fruit and stuff, but not sort of religiously, so to speak. So I started to make a real effort to improve my diet. And I made sure I ate my five a day and I had whole grains and I swapped to basmati rice because that's a lower GI than glycemic index level, um, the long grain, which is what I'd always used before. Did all of this sort of thing and convinced myself that I was eating healthily. I was overweight. Um, I was about 14 stone two, not quite sure how much that is in, in pounds and kilos, but it's a lot. Let's put it that way. Um, and so everything sort of went along fine. I convinced myself that although I was overweight and obviously I knew that was a risk for, for diabetes, but, you know, I thought I was eating healthily and all the blood tests. I had regular tests because of other things. So uh, it's all seemed fine and dandy until about four years ago uh, in the September, my routine blood tests came back with a raised HbA1c um, of 68, which is pretty high. It's well into the diabetic range. So, which, uh, sorry, go on. I was going to say for the Americans is 8.4, something like yeah. that. Yeah, something like that. It's sort of well into the diabetic range. And my GP gave me this information. I saw her and she and she said, you know, you can do quite a bit with diet. So I said, well, I think I am eating healthily, really. I said, you know, I, I always cook my own meals. We don't very, very rarely do we get a ready meal. Um, I, you know, all my five a day, I have whole grains, um, jacket potatoes, sort of all the things which I she said, oh, yes. She said, it sounds as if you are eating healthily. Um, and those are pretty much the national guidelines for eating. Yeah, of course, I'm not a saint. Um, and I did have the odd mini ice cream or the odd pork pie. But generally... I felt I was eating healthily. 
So she said, well, in which case, we'd better put you on some medication. So she prescribed the usual thing, the metformin, and home I came. But I had heard over the previous year or so, I suppose, I'd seen a couple of TV programmes, I'd watched, uh, I'd read uh, various articles, or at least half read, seen the, the headlines in the newspaper, but you know what it is, you haven't got diabetes, so you don't particularly read the article, you know, it's not necessarily of interest to you you're not diabetic what does it matter sort of thing um but sort of racked my brains and I remembered seeing Michael Mosley do he does a whole series on our national television uh, called uh, trust me I'm a doctor and he had done one about diabetes and being able to put it in remission so I went online looked up his name and found that he had a book called the 800 uh, the eight week blood sugar diet and I sent off for that. In the meantime, took the tablets. So I took them for about three or four days. Then I got the book and read it from cover to cover in a couple of hours. It's not very long. Um, there's lots of recipes in it as well, which obviously I didn't read all the way through. Um, but I could immediately see that this made sense. If your problem is that you've got too much glucose, if you stop putting the glucose in, you're not going to have such a problem. Um, yes, OK, that is a calorie counted diet in the sense that it's 800 calories a day. And when I first heard that 800 calories a day for eight weeks, I thought, God, I'm going to be absolutely starving hungry for eight weeks. I mean, you know, it's going to be awful. But, you know, eight weeks, what's eight weeks in terms of a lifetime? And if that's what it takes to sort the diabetes out, because I certainly did not want the consequences of diabetes. So I thought, you know, eight weeks in the whole scheme of things is nothing. You know, you can put up with eight weeks and then, you know, it'll be fine. But lo and behold, I wasn't hungry. I mean, I couldn't believe that I wasn't constantly hungry because, as I say, although it is calorie counted, it is also, in essence, a low carbohydrate diet. You're cutting out the pasta, the rice, the potatoes, you know, all those starchy carbs. So, of course, you're not feeling hungry. Now I know, of course, you're not feeling hungry. I didn't know then. So that was really my introduction to it. So I did my eight weeks. Well, in fact, I was feeling so great on it and things were going so well and the weight dropped off so fast I couldn't believe it. Because as I say, I was 14 stone two, which I think is probably about 90 kilos, something like that. Um, and I had also heard, I mean, the other approach was that, you know, if you could lose 10 or 15% of your body weight, that also would uh, put your diabetes in remission. So I sort of thought, OK, well, if I can get down to 12 stone and I knew in my heart of hearts that I felt better at 12 stone than I had done at 14. I'd given up smoking about 20 years before. Um, and that's when the extra couple of stone had crept on. So I thought, well, if I can get back to 12, that would be great. But we went out for an evening out. We went out to the theatre after about six weeks and I put my winter coat and I was sort of getting out, you know, Get, getting dressed to go out sort of thing rather than just going to the supermarket and I realized my coat was just looking ridiculous it was so big and it had a belt around the middle and I felt a bit like a bag lady going out in this enormous coat with the belt dragged around the middle so we went into a department store on our way to the theater and I bought myself a new coat because <laughs> I just couldn't stand being the way I was and I thought this is absolutely fantastic so I actually went on with the 800 calories a day for uh, 14 weeks I decided to go up to Christmas because I'd started in mid-September and I thought you know if I can get down to 11 stone for Christmas that would be fantastic so I kept going and I did just make the 11 stone for Christmas um, 
And I might say at the same time, I share a house with my sister and she wanted to be really supportive. So we got rid of all the things from the cupboard that I shouldn't eat, like the biscuits and the pasta and the rice. We threw it all away or gave it to the food bank. So she only did it to support me. And plus, you know, if you're cooking things, it's easier if you both eat the same thing. And she lost three stone as well. Um, so totally coincidentally, yes, she was overweight, but I mean, we'd both given up trying to lose weight because every time we tried dieting, which we had, um, you know, you only put it on again. So you get to a certain age, we were both in our mid sixties and you sort of think, what's the point of even trying anymore? Because you know, it's all going to come back again. So there's no point. So anyway, yeah, it sort of fell off. And then obviously you cannot stay on 800 calories a day forever. That's not a healthy way of going. You can do it for a short-term burst, but that's not a, a sustainable diet. Um, so, but in the meantime, I'd started to, that was my introduction really to low carb. And so I started looking into it more and uh, I gradually upped my calories. I didn't sort of suddenly jump to eating three times as much. I just gradually upped it. And I still went on losing weight, even though I was eating more calories, I was still losing weight. So I lost in total four stones. So from being 14 to I'm now 10 to, and don't ask me how many kilos or pounds that is. Well, 10 stone, of course, <laughs> is 140, 140 pounds. So that's yeah. an easy one to do. Um, so and I seven. suppose it's probably about 60 kilos, Six, is it? 58, 65. something like that. Oh, 65. It's as much as Maybe. That, I don't it? know. I don't know. <laughs> Somewhere um, around there. Anyway, it's, it's in the normal healthy BMI, if one goes by BMI, which I'm not up great fan of but you know it's some indication isn't it i'm in yeah, the normal weight category yeah. 65 kilos just four like dress sizes smaller anyway which is sort of one of the things that interests us i think you know it, it's a good thing to go four sizes down and be able to shop in shops that you couldn't shop in before because they didn't do anything above a 16 or something you know that's yeah, a absolutely. that's a, a good moment so yeah, yes that's what got me going really um and as a part of that, because Michael Mosley's blood sugar diet had a forum on their own, sort of his own website for the blood sugar diet has its forum. And I joined that, um, didn't participate a huge amount, but I did sort of look and see what people put on there and the people suggested recipes as well, which was quite useful. And through that, I then discovered that there were several Facebook sites that were connected to the diet, supporting people who were following the eight-week blood sugar diet. And I joined a couple of those. Um, one of them in particular was run by a guy called Mark Hancock. And Mark, one day I'd posted something about it because I was becoming really annoyed because I thought, you know, if I'd known this years ago, my sister as well, you know, there's no way we wouldn't have done this years ago. You discover just how easy it is to A, lose weight and B, keep the weight off. And you understand, you know, the, the, the connection with the diabetes and the terrible consequences of not controlling your diabetes. And yet being told by the NHS, you know, that you must eat six times a day and base your meals on the starchy carbs, you know, it started to make me feel really angry. And I must have posted something about this one day and Mark contacted me and said sounds like you think about this very much the way I do have you thought of joining the PHC I thought PHC what's the PHC and he said uh, so he gave me the link and I looked it up and it's something called the public health collaboration which is a national charity and it's dedicated to improving the health of people um, but through lifestyle change because the bottom line is medication generally doesn't 
cure you. It may deal with the symptoms. It sort of maybe prolongs any progression, in, particularly in terms of diabetes. It'll slow down the progression, but it certainly won't put you into remission or get rid of the diabetes. Um, and so I thought, yeah, this does sound like me. So he gave me an introduction to, he told Sam, the director about me, and I had a, an interview with Sam and I joined up uh, I joined the PHC as what's called an ambassador. Um, and there are several hundred, two or 300 of us now up and down the country. Some healthcare professionals like GPs and diabetes nurses, uh, but a lot of others like Mark and myself uh, and others who have come from the patient perspective, i.e. we've experienced this of the remission from type two diabetes and feel passionate about helping others to do the same. And uh, so that's what I now do. I run groups. It took me a little while because it can be quite difficult actually getting through to the medical professionals that this is the answer. I know they're extremely busy. They've been taught years ago the tiny bit of nutrition they ever did when they studied medicine or nursing or whatever, which frankly is minimal anyway. I mean, it's a few hours in the whole of their training. But what it is, is very much this old dogma, you know, that fat will kill you and, you know, you should avoid fat at all costs. So you get this low fat mantra. Um, and of course, if you eat low fat, you have to eat low carb because you've got to eat something. Your 100 percent of your plates with the food has to be made up of something. Yeah. Uh, and you can't send a protein. Low fat, high carb. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry, you should said, I say low yeah. carb? Sorry, yeah, it has to be. <laughs> yes, if you eat low fat, it has to be high carb. You, there's no alternative uh, because protein's somewhere in the middle and generally people don't eat vast amounts of protein. Um, you know, mostly you eat, I think they say between about 10 and 15% is what most people eat worldwide in terms of protein. That's a natural sort of amount. So the other bit has to be split between the others. Well, you know, if you cut the fat, you've got to up the carbs. So it just does not make sense. We've been so indoctrinated that fat is bad for us. Animal yeah. fats are bad for us. Saturated fats are bad for us. We must have vegetable oils, which Dr. Chris Kenobi calls them poison. Um, so it's we're just in this place in between where you, you try and come in with something that's different and people are not really interested in listening. No, they aren't. And it's quite surprising. Um, my sister, for example, has two friends and they regularly go, they go out on their birthdays, you know, and two pay for the other one on birthdays. And they meet up a couple of other times a year, um, go out to a posh restaurant and whatnot. Now, both these friends of hers, similarly overweight, they also have various health problems, sort of, you know, irritable bowel syndrome or arthritis, sort of niggles and this, that and the other. They can see that she's lost these three stone, that she's better. For instance, she had terrible IBS and it sorted her IBS out, irritable bowel syndrome, within about six or seven weeks. She just hasn't had any problems since. And before it ruled our lives, we couldn't go out in the morning until she'd been to the loo. So, you know, it completely changed her life. They can see this and yet they still are convinced that more oh, that fat, oh, you know, eating all that fat. And yet they can see that it's not made her ill. In fact, it's made her better. It's astonishing how people can just and she, you know, she has other friends as well who similar, oh, you know, my doctor says and he wants me on a statin, you know, and I, I have a history of heart disease in our family. I don't you know. I don't think I could do that. And, you know, and unfortunately, 
the medical profession often is very similar. They're, they're sort of stuck in what they've been taught and reluctant, despite the fact that, you know, you present them with the evidence, but they sort of say, oh, well, you know, that's just a few people and that's not evidence in any way we don't know. And anyway, you know, the long term and mumble all sorts of stuff. But, you know, what's the long term consequences of doing what we have been doing for the last 50 or 60 years that we've got a population that's sicker and fatter than it ever was? So, you know, that's the long term consequence of doing what you've been doing. Why not try what we've been doing and see where you get? You can't get worse than you are now. Is the bottom Absolutely. line I feel. Absolutely. And and even without the the people that we know that we know would feel better for doing these things, but some people are given that type two diagnosis and they just ignore it and they just think, well, I'll um I'll just carry on taking the pills because that's what yeah. I've been told to do. To take the yeah. pills, follow the standard Western diet and get progressively worse and and then they look at us and they they still don't do anything i just it just amazes me yeah yeah and uh, and you sort of say well what do you do well you know you cut out the starchy carbohydrates things like bread oh no i couldn't give up my bread couldn't give up my toast well frankly giving up toast i'd rather give up my toast than lose my toes you know because that's the risk you run if you don't do something about it and you go on. And the idea that the medication is saving you, I'm afraid, is is just wrong. All the medication's doing is helping your body get the glucose out of your bloodstream, but it's only storing it as fat and causing problems and damaging all the cells in your body with this stored glucose based fat you know it's storing up problems for the future and of course yes they start on one medication but then that doesn't quite do it and the levels start to creep up so the gp says oh well the doctor says you know oh well we'll put you on this medication and yeah okay your levels come back down again and that's all fine and dandy and then all of a sudden it starts creeping up again because yes you are still doing the diet that they suggest i mean i was sent on diabetes this was a funny one I was sent every time, I don't know what happens in other countries, but in the UK, when you're diagnosed as diabetic, they send you on diabetes education and it's generally a whole morning, a couple of hours or so. Well, I went along to mine. Well, I was diagnosed in September. By December, my HbA1c was down to 35. Not only had I lost the three stone in weight, but my diabetes was in remission. I was down to 35, which is well into the normal range. Anything under 42 is normal. In American, I think that's something like five. Is it something like that? The HbA1c? Yeah, 5.4. Yeah. Um, so I go along to the diabetes education in February. I mean, it, on, in the, on the one hand, I suppose, if I hadn't joined the PHC and become a bit passionate about evangelizing low carb, I probably wouldn't have bothered going because, frankly, what was the point? But I thought, no, I'm going to go out of interest. And, you know, education is a two way process, as I subsequently told them. And they weren't very happy about that. Um, but I went along. And the first thing we did, more or less, she said, there were about 20, 25 people in the room, I suppose, and two diabetes nurses leading the, the course. And they said that thought might be an idea to just go around the room and just introduce yourself, you know, explain perhaps how long you'd been diabetic, whatever, you know. So we go around and some of them had been diabetic for 20 odd years, this, that and the other. And some of them were on medication, some of them weren't. 
Uh, and she got to me fairly close to the end. And I said, well, I was diagnosed in September, um, HbA1c 68, but I've now put mine in remission. Uh, my HbA1c is now 35. And there was this huge gasp went up in the room. <gasps> sort of, oh, and Ted's turned round and looked towards me. You know, how have you done that? So the nurse said, you know, well, how have you done that? So I said, well, actually, I followed um, Michael Mosley's eight-week blood sugar diet, but essentially low carb and um i lost four stone as well and all applause all around you know they're all really so um i enlarged a little bit more and i said actually if anybody's interested i've got sort of some information with me because i always go everywhere armed with information i go with leaflets giving my contact details and websites you know like dietdoctor.com and all sorts of places to go and look up stuff and um, so i said if anybody's interested there was a chorus of oh yes you know nods nods so anyway, then we progress with the education session, which obviously includes the eat well plate, this lovely plate, you know, stuffed with carbohydrates and, you know, our brains, we need to eat carbohydrates for our brains. It's important. And, you know, we must base our meals on starchy carbohydrates and three sort of eat little and often and all this other usual nonsense that gets there. By the end, they'd, they'd obviously convinced this lot because nobody came to me for this information. Well, I picked on a couple of them that had obviously been the obviously keen. I've, I could see that some of them were probably never really going to listen, but there were a couple of them who definitely looked as if they were open to hearing other things. And I said to them, um, did you want to take the the information that I had? Oh, well, I suppose we could, yes. And I gave them the thing, but I don't suppose they ever, because they'd been so indoctrinated, you know, because it's, of course, the nurse telling them that they must eat carbs, you know, their brains need carbs, you know, and yet people can't say, you know, I'm here and I think my brain functions reasonably well, you know what I mean? and I don't eat carbs or very few of them. So, you know, despite the evidence in front of their eyes, people are not prepared to listen somehow, you know, you might be getting it away with it, but they almost certainly wouldn't in their view, I think. But it is, it's really strange how people can see the evidence in front of their eyes and yet ignore it and sort of somehow, oh well, yeah, but you must be just odd, you know, it might work for you, but it wouldn't work for me. And the other GP thing is yes, but it's not sustainable long-term, you know, it might work for some people. Well, true, not everybody will stay with it. You know, you you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink is the expression, isn't it? So, but at least give them the opportunity, at least offer it as an alternative, let them give it a go. If then they say, no, this isn't for me, then fine. But at least you gave them the information and it's their choice at the end of the day. You know, you can't force somebody to do something um, and they have to make a choice about it, but at least give them the option. Yes. And that's uh, that's where I think we are let down by the NHS and by our doctors and nurses because it is an option. We're not saying that it has to be for everyone because no. not everyone will want to do it. No. But at least offer it as an option. Yeah, let them experience it. It really is, I was going to say, a crime against humanity. It I'm is. Me being a bit dramatic, but actually withholding information ethically is not um, being truthful you know there's no veracity in that so by withholding it but the, the point is as you said you know there's all this government guidelines and policies that this is the standard of care that this is the way things are done the eat well plate the the nice guidelines but as you're saying 
Here is my lived experience. I dropped my HB1AC from 68 to 35 and you had this rousing, you know, you're the poster child for the moment. But then, as you said, you know, there is all this other um, inputs of you need carbohydrates. You can eat six times. You know, who wouldn't want to eat six times? You know, here is your plate, you know, composed of these healthy whole grains. So the persuasiveness of the argument is very strong. But at the end of the day, it's this cognitive dissonance. You know, I'm entrenched in my my thinking Anything else is just, you know, in a parallel universe and there is this this chasm of, you know, to, to really bridge. There and is. I suppose that's really where you came in with your your next chapter around the, the public health collaboration where you now are that conduit between the lived experience of, you know, putting diabetes in remission and those people that are at the practice level. and. Yeah you know, really are that that conduit of this is my lived experience and this is the hows, the whats and the practicalities. So maybe you could share a bit more about you being the champion ambassador. <laughs> yes, and how I got started. It's not easy. You know, you can write an email, you can write a letter to a GP surgery um, and frankly, I suspect it goes in the bin. I suspect they get lots and lots of emails and lots of different people contacting them about various things they're busy people they'll be admin people who think, oh, you know, rip it up shove it in the bin you know delete the email who's going to be bothered about this you know who who are these people anyway so it's not an easy thing to get actual contact with a gp and even try and persuade them then that maybe you can do something um so I tried various things and I, I joined, for example, the local here. We have the national charity Diabetes UK, who unfortunately uh, are not. They have just about in tiny print now on their website uh, suggested that, you know, you can do low carb, but it's a very tiny thing in small print and not at all um, encouraged. And uh, they give all sorts of high carb advice basically uh, but I joined the local group and to be fair the local group are very nice people etc I fell out with them subsequently um, which is a bit of another story but um, so you get a, a sort of newsletter about various things going on in the diabetes world in the local area and I got an email about a group which said come and meet your local GPs um, at a sort of open meeting and I thought oh great opportunity you know all these local basing stoke GAP, G, GPs must go along to this um, when I got there I discovered that it wasn't really all the local GPs it was one GP practice who'd become one of these new they have these primary care networks which are sort of small groups of surgeries that work together um, and do some projects in common they work each individually but they do some things in common and they were basically wanting to explain to their patients all the various things they were doing and they gave and I sort of my heart sank and I thought oh this wasn't what I thought still never mind I'm here now I'd got a bus to get there and my sister was picking me up later so I thought well I might as well sit here and listen um, and there were various stands there as well park run had a stand and diabetes UK and a couple of other people so I thought I'll sit here and listen and it was a young GP called uh, Dr Tim Cooper and I was really impressed, actually, with his presentation. And they were doing lots of things, for instance, with mental health. They were working with mental health charities. So they weren't just using NHS resources. They were outsourcing to other uh, bodies. 
so this sort of encouraged me. Um, so I said there were various things and various people intervened in the presentation. I was quite impressed. So at the end of it, I made a beeline and went straight to the head of the queue in front of Tim Cooper to speak to him. Because at the end, he sort of said, you know, that's all we hope you've enjoyed it, etc. Perhaps you'd like to have a look at the stands we've got here, really interesting things, you know, go and look at those. So I shot straight to him and I said, uh, you know, I would really enjoyed your presentation. Um, my name's Liz Laplan. I'm the local ambassador for the Public Health Collaboration. Have you heard of the Public Health Collaboration? So blank face, no. Um, well, no surprise there because I hadn't either until I joined them. So I said, um, Dr. David Unwin. Oh, yes, he said, I'm a big fan of David's. I follow him on Twitter. So I thought, yay, I'm here because David Unwin, for those that don't know, is a wonderful GP in the north of England. And he's a big pioneer of low carb. He's spoken all over the world about it. Um, he's been doing low carb with his patients for about seven or eight years now. Uh, he's brilliant on the data. He keeps all his facts and figures and he publishes them in the BMJ and other, you know, recognized medical journals. He's fantastic. So as soon as Tim said, oh yes, I'm a big fan of David's, I sort of thought, right, I'm in here. So I said to him, um, oh, that's great. So well, David's actually one of the founders of the PHC. And um, as the PHC, we can help you with resources and leaflets and things. And I, for instance, I could help you set up a low carb group at your practice, a bit like David runs at his. I said, if you'd be interested. Oh, yes, definitely, he said. So I said, well, here are my details, because naturally, as always, I had got along armed with all my information. So I gave him all my contact details and sort of sat back. And within two days, he'd contacted me and said, yeah, sounds like a great idea. You know, what should we do? Where should we do it? You know, that we have three practices, etc. Well, I didn't feel quite like taking on three uh, groups all at once. So I said I would do two at, at two of their main um, practices. But actually a bit of panic set in because I thought, goodness, how do I how do I do this? You know, I I didn't have a set course set up because certainly at that time uh, the PHC didn't have any sort of standardized sort of training manual or anything. I mean, I would had a bit of training and obviously I'd got all my own experience. But in my work life, too, previously, um, I'd never had to do because I'd not worked in an office for about 10 years. And when I did, you know, it was before really the the big sort of mass use of computers and things. So who'd ever given a PowerPoint presentation? I didn't even know how to write a PowerPoint presentation. I didn't have a clue. I thought, goodness, what am I going to do? But I said, blithely, I said, oh, yes, yes, that's fine. You know, let's set it up. And uh, so we arranged that we would sort of set it up and it would start in a couple of months time, give us time to recruit people and all the rest of it. But actually he wanted it set up quite soon. It might not even have been two months. I can't remember now. It might only have been a, about six weeks. And I'm a bit of a panic. But fortunately, that spring, we had had a PHC ambassadors conference. And at that conference, there'd been a really fantastic talk by a guy called Andy Bishop, who runs or was running, still runs low carb groups up in the Merseyside area, Liverpool area of the UK. And he again, had come from the patient perspective. And he said the work that he'd been doing up there and he showed us some of the slides from his course. And we were all so enthusiastic that after the conference, uh, Sam, the director, had been inundated with lots of people saying, can't we have Andy's information? Can we not share? Can Andy not share his stuff? So it all got posted. We have a sort of a joint 
Google Drive section, you know. Um, so I took Andy's things uh, and basically, I, obviously I took out Andy's personal story and put in my own personal story, but I used a lot of Andy's slides to start off with and then gradually added my own. So I wrote up about three sessions uh, because to begin with, they wanted it run. They only wanted to do it every three weeks, the sessions, because they wanted it to fit in with their out of hours surgery times. So we did them on Saturdays and they worked on a rotor. So they were sort of every three weeks. So I thought, well, if I've got three or four to, to go, that's fine, because obviously it's going to be several weeks before we need the last ones. And so by then I will have written them. And so we set off. And that first, first cohort, some of the people who came to it weren't diabetic or pre-diabetic they were simply overweight and they came for weight loss but between the two centers we had 16 patients who were either diabetic or pre-diabetic and of those 16 by the end of the three months because we tested them all at the beginning with their hba1c's and we did their cholesterol and their triglycerides etc and liver function tests as well at the beginning and we did it again at the end after three months and of those 16, 12 had a normal HbA1c under 42. So that's three quarters of them. Um, they'd obviously lost significant weight as well. Some of them more, some of them less, some of them sort of half a stone, some of them a couple of stone. Um, of the other four, one of them for some reason sort of didn't change and quite what was going on there, don't know. But the other three had all been diabetic for a long time. Two of them were insulin dependent they all lost a minimum of 12 millimoles um, or with their HbA1c levels and reduced insulin. I had one chap who came when he first came, his wife who came with him as well, uh, said, you know, his tummy was a bit like a pincushion because he was injecting insulin so many times a day. He was injecting five or six times a day. Well, within three weeks, he'd stopped his short acting insulin and was only needing his long acting overnight insulin. So the difference is dramatic. So, you know, we got a huge result from that first course. So but going to explaining how you get through to the healthcare professionals, I'd initially had, I had one chap who came to this course and his HbA1c, he was into the diabetic range. He wasn't terribly high, but sort of 48, 49. And over the three months, he reduced his HbA1c. He went right down to the non-diabetic range. I think it was down to 40 or something. And he saw his diabetes nurse who looked at his results. Here he's in remission. He'd lost over a stone in weight as well. And she'd said to him, oh, oh she said, this is good. She said, um, what have you been doing? So he said, oh, well, I've been going to that low carb course. So she said, what low carb course? Despite the fact that at their surgery, the posters advertising the course were up in every corridor and in every waiting room. How she could have walked around and not seen the posters? I'm not sure. But anyway, she said, what low carb course? He said, well, you know, it's advertised and thing. My GP told me to go to it. So she said, oh, OK. So she said, well, what do you do? You know, what, what's it about? So he said, um, well, um, it's sort of low carbohydrate. She said, well, yes, but what do you eat? So he said, um, 
oh, well, amongst other things, he must have been, he said, nuts and cheese. Nuts and cheese? She jumped at him. Nuts and cheese? And she so went on at him about eating nuts and cheese and how bad they were and because they were high in fat and whatnot. He didn't eat nuts again because he'd seen her just after one meeting. He came to the next meeting and told me about this and he hadn't eaten nuts since. He said, I thought I ought to stop them. So I said, no, no, don't stop your nuts. So I thought, this is not helpful, is it? You know, if the healthcare professionals are not on the same sheet, you know, all very well that the surgeries in theory behind this course, and I'm supposedly doing it with the surgery, if half of them aren't with it. So I'd written to Tim and told him about this. And he said, well, you know, once we've done the course, let's then, you know, we can do a presentation. Perhaps you can write a presentation for the staff that, you know, the GPs, the nurses, etc., And we can, we'll, we'll have the evidence of our patients and we can put that in there and that hopefully will bring them on side rather than just trying to randomly get them on board. So fair enough. So we finish off the course um, and I duly write out this presentation and we arrange that I will give it at all three sites because we've decided that after Christmas, because we've had such great results, we're going to start a new course in the January. And, we'll do, and I agreed that I would do it at all three because I'd seen with my timetable, I could just about manage to do three instead of two. Um, so I gave a presentation to them as well. Well, at the biggest, so we set up the meetings, they're all arranged, they're lunchtime meetings and whatnot. The biggest practice of the group, they must have, judging by the size of the place, it's a two-storey build, a big two-storey building. There are loads of consultation rooms and, you know, you get a list up of who's on duty. And there were there must have been 10 or a dozen GPs at least. And I know they have two full-time diabetes nurses. We had two GPs and none of the nurses came to the meeting, which is so sad. You know, obviously they'd been notified of the meeting, but, you know, they're not don't have to go to these things, you know, and nobody came. It's so sad. Um, and in fact, that same practice since, of course, since then, we did start the ones in the January. Well, come January, a week or so before, I used to, as part of the course, take food with me. I used to take low carb food with me. Um, week one, for instance, I used to take a breakfast granola, homemade granola that you could make. Um, and I took that. And in week two, I would take low carb breads, for instance, and crackers and stuff. So I did all sorts. Had to be cold finger food, but I took loads of different stuff. Um, so obviously it was helpful to know how many people were going to become to the first session. So I knew how many to cater for. Uh, so I rang up this surgery, the largest of them, uh, about a week before the course and sort of said, can you tell me how many people you've got signed up for the new session? Uh, and they said, um, oh, don't seem to, you know, there isn't a list. So support there should be because in the during the previous session, when I'd been going to the surgery coming sort of in the autumn, I'd gone in one day and somebody said, oh, we've got a whole lot of people signed up for the new course. Because I'd said after we would got to about session three or four, I said, I don't want any more coming in because they've really missed the important early sessions. We'll start them off on the new one. So take a note of name and contact numbers. And one of the receptionists or admin staff or somebody that I'd seen had said, you know, we've got quite a few people now um, on this. You know, what should we do? We've got people asking. So I said, well, make a note. And I knew they had a list of names. So when I rang up, said, you know, where the list of, you know, how many have you got to be told that they didn't have a list? So I said, well, I know you did have a list because, you know, I saw the list, you know, that I was told there was a list. Somebody, you know, showed me this. Well, it doesn't seem to be here now. 
So I said, well, perhaps you can, you know, manage to rally somebody up. So I thought they had nobody signed up to come to this meeting that was sort of next Monday. So I thought, right, what can I do about this? I was so furious, but you know, there's no point ranting and raving at them because that's not going to get them on board. So I thought, what can I do? So I went on the local neighborhood Facebook page. Lots of neighborhoods have, you know, a self-help Facebook page. People post all sorts of local neighborhood news on there. So I went on there and sort of said, you know, we've been running this great low carb course, really successful. We had lots of success the previous one. But unfortunately, the surgeries lost the list. So if any of you had signed up to it and want to come, you know, come along. Well, within the space of two days, I had 11 people. So the idea that the patients, because the other thing they say was patients aren't interested. Well, sorry, you can't tell me that patients aren't interested. If I can get 11 together on a local Facebook page, you know, what are you doing? Um, so they came along. Um, most of them actually hadn't been on the surgery list. And I will say that subsequently they did find the surgery list. And indeed, it was two full pages of A4 names. It was a load of names and they'd completely lost it temporarily. So I contacted a lot of them and, you know, we've got some of them on board, etc. So, yeah, th there's all sorts of dissonance goes on. And, you know, the fact that you're working with a surgery doesn't necessarily mean that you've got everybody on board. Um, so it's a bit of a battle. So we started that group in the, the new lot in the January at the three centres and we were all going fine and dandy and it was going great and we got more people coming and it was really good. And then COVID hit us. So, of course, suddenly meetings go by the board and I began to hear things about people doing things by Zoom, but I do actually work as well. <laughs> I'm still I semi-retired from I run my own business and um, I make miniature furniture for a living and I'd semi-retired two years uh, the year before and of course what happens when there's lockdown worldwide what does everybody do they're furloughed they're stuck at home what are we going to do oh yes let's get the doll's house out um, and let's go and do our hobbies so I got inundated with orders I mean I had a pile on my desk that took me months to work through and I didn't know anything about zoom whoever would used zoom or meetings or you know I wasn't in an office situation so I had no need for it and I just thought oh goodness zoom this is going to be it's another of those things you know it's going to take me ages you know I'm going to have to spend a whole day learning how to do this and I haven't got time to do that now so you know I'll try and do it at some point you know I'll put it off as you do then fortunately sometime in the spring Sam um Feltham from the PHC, uh, the, the director, we, the PHC have an annual conference every year. And normally it's a live event at a big conference center with lots of international speakers, brilliant events. I'd been to two of them since I joined. But last year, of course, again, like all the conferences everywhere in the States, in Australia, wherever, um, all went either was scratched completely or they went virtual and Sam decided to run a virtual conference and he asked me to give a talk about the work I was doing with the the groups etc and it was I had to record it on zoom so I thought oh goodness I'm gonna have to get to grips with that with this so Sam forced me into getting to grips and of course I realized straight away that zoom's a complete doddle all you do is press the button say yes and it works so you know it doesn't take hours and hours of, of difficult negotiations with the computer um so I did my speech for for the talk for Sam and uh, then I sort of decided well perhaps I should do this and maybe we can set up a group a, a group 
by Zoom. So I contacted the surgery, said, you know, you're happy. Shall we start up a group uh, doing it on Zoom? Yeah, what a good idea. So I said, well, I'll slightly rewrite the course because by Zoom, it's a very slightly different approach. So I sort of slightly rewrote uh, and we set up a date and I started doing it. And then what happened was that about three weeks in, I think, somebody emailed me and said, I'm really sorry, but I can't make the session on Monday. I've got this work thing that I can't get out of. Could you possibly record it for me so that I don't miss it? So I sort of had a thing. Thought, yeah, of course I can record it. You know, I've done this talk. I could knew how to record on Zoom. Um, so I said, yeah, no problem. So when we came to the session, I said to everybody else, because obviously you've got the data permission thing. So I said, um, you know, are you OK if I record this? I said, I'm only recording it to send to those who would have been here as part of the group anyway. So they were all OK with that. So I recorded it and sent it the link to um, the people who couldn't get there. And again, the next week, similar thing happened. A couple of people said, can't make the course, could you record it for me? So I got to thinking, hang about a bit. If I could record all the sessions, just record them blank without a live group there, but just you know, do them as, because after all, at the end of the day, the presentation is full of slides. People are basically watching the slides. They're not watching me. And when you do it with Zoom, you've got your head in the corner anyway. Um, so they are sort of watching you as well as all the slides. I thought if I can record all the talks, I could then put them online somewhere and all the things, because I used to take the food with me and then obviously I would email everybody the recipes so that they tried it out and thought, oh, this is lovely. You know, can I make this? Yes. Yes, here's the recipe. So I could put all the recipes on there. And also I used to give them an information sheet every week linked to that week's course. So with, you know, if it was, for instance, if I did a, a session on exercise, it gave them links to various exercise videos or links that they could find out more about it or, you know, stress reduction, because these things are important as well as diet. You know, we're not just talking about diet. It's other things that affect glucose and weight, of course. Um, so, you know, stress and sleep and all of these sorts of things. So there were links to other websites, links to websites with recipes, link, you know, suggestions for good cookery books or good books to read, like, you know, The Big Fat Surprise by Nina Tysholtz, fantastic book. I think everybody should read that. So lots of stuff. And I could put it all on there. And then because the other thing that happened too was I would start a course and you're like two, three weeks in, you covered the basics. The basics, I think, are the dietary stuff. You then get on to talking about the exercise and the sleep and whatnot. But of course, you get people who want to join and you think of them and you get sent the details and they've got an HbA1c of you know 80 or 100. And you think, do I really want to be telling this person that they've got to wait two, perhaps three months until I start my new group. No, that's not humane, frankly, because, you know, the sooner they get going, the better, you know, they shouldn't be left with an HbA1c of 80. So you've got this dilemma, what do you do with them? And so I'd started sort of saying, you know, well, I'm not starting the next course for a couple of months, but if you like, I could send you some of the information in the meantime, I could send you the diet sheet don't like calling it a diet sheet but what else can you call it except a diet sheet a lifestyle <laughs> sheet doesn't really sound right does it um you know i can send you that and then by all means you can join the course when we do the next course but in the meantime you could have a go yourself but it's not ideal really so I thought if i could put everything online then anybody can join anytime because they can start watching all these presentations themselves they'll have all the other information there they can do it so anybody can join anytime 
So that's what I decided to do. And I've put it all, it's all on a Google Drive folder, essentially. And so when somebody registers for the course, um, they get sent the link for this Google Drive and they've therefore got access. There's the eight sessions that they can watch. And I encourage them obviously to watch the entire first session, which is really important. And then the others they can do as they want. Some of them have written to me and said, you know, I sat down on Sunday and watched all of them. You know, they've binge watched like, watched like a box set. Um, others of them spread them out. And I'm sure some of them don't watch all of them. You know, at the end of the day, everybody's entitled to do what they want, aren't they? But there's a huge recipe folder there. And of course now, that I'm not actually taking the food. I've also included sort of hot meal things, suggestions as well. It doesn't just have to be the finger food that I could take to the course. Um, there's all sorts of recipes in there. And we've increased our recipe book list there. And I say, if anybody comes across a good book, you know, tell me and I'll add it to the recommended list and so on. So what happens now is, of course, there's two advantages again to having this online. Before, when I was actually going to the surgeries and I was running the groups there in the meeting room at the surgery, it was limited to the patients at that surgery, partly because the surgery did pay for the food. Um, they didn't pay me. I work as a volunteer, but they did pay for the ingredients from the food. Um, and obviously they weren't going to be paying for everybody else's patients to be eating the food. Um, but of course, freed from that because we're Zoom, it doesn't matter where they come from. So I was able to take patients who weren't at that particular practice. And in fact, I had one or two people who'd done the course who said, you know, I've got friends, I've told them about it, but they're not actually in our area. Can they join? And I'd say, yeah, of course they can, you know, get them to contact me. Um, there are some safety issues here because if some people are diabetic and they're on certain medications, they need to reduce that medication right from the beginning. Because I've had people referred to me by the diabetes nurse who I get sent their details. The nurse sort of suggests, you know, you might like to try our low carb group. Uh, are you OK if I give the lady your details? And so they then send me their name and their mobile phone number and their email address. And um, sometimes they'll tell me what their HbA1c is. And obviously they've asked the patient's permission. So that's fine. So I then ring the patient and I say um, and I maybe discover that because I ask them what medication they're on. And I discover that, for instance, they might be on insulin or they might be on glycolazide, which is another of these medications that, that matters. And I say, did the nurse mention anything about reducing your medication? And she said, no, she said, I did ask about that. But she said, go and do the course and then we'll discuss the medication. And I said, well, you know, you can't do that. I said, your metformin's fine. That doesn't matter, really. You can go on taking your metformin. Nothing much is going to happen if you go on taking that. But your insulin and your glycoside, you really must reduce right from the beginning. Um, and I send them because very fortunately, Dr. David Unwin, that I mentioned previously, this wonderful GP, and several other people, another GP, I think it was Campbell Murdoch, and a diabetes consultant, David Cavan, got together and wrote a scientific paper for aimed at GPs and other healthcare professionals on the reduction of me reducing medication for type two diabetics on a, following a low carb course. So I then in, 
press upon the patient the importance of having a conversation with their nurse or GP. I send them this scientific paper. I say, I suggest that you read this. Okay, you may not understand all the finer points of it because it's fairly technical, but you'll get the idea. And there's a table at the bottom that says yes or no, stop or reduce or whatever. And I say, make sure when you speak to your nurse or GP, that they are aware of this because I know the surgeries that I've worked with, that you know, the group that I started with, Dr. Cooper put that onto there. They have a sort of internal network of you know stuff that they have information that they can access. And it is on there, but patently, obviously, the nurses actually weren't reading it. I think they have got the hint now because the ones that I get from those things, they, when I ask them now and say, has the nurse, she said, yeah, oh, yes, she said, if I do it, I'm just reduce my medication so they have finally got the message but because as I say now I'm not tied to specific surgeries so I will every now and then go on the local Facebook pages and there's a I've got I'm on about six or seven different local Facebook pages um, normally they'll only let you in if you're a resident but I sort of say well no I'm not a resident but I run the low carb group for this surgery you know etc um, and they let me in um, I'll go on there and do a bit of a recruiter drive and sort of say, you know, we're having great success with our low carb group. You know, if you're diabetic or overweight and you want to join us, you know, just email me and I'll give you the details. Uh, and some of those are at surgeries that I have no actual contact with. So, of course, I'm knowing not contact with their um, nurses or GPs. So, again, I make sure that I impress upon them. And as I say, I send them this the link to this paper so that they can see it and I say you know you must give this to your GP or your nurse and insist they read it and have this discussion because you do need to reduce your medication because it's dangerous if you don't um so you know because I don't want somebody you know having a hypo or whatever and potentially you could die if you have a hypo you know I mean it, it could be serious um so you know there are safeguarding things so I do contact every single patient before I then send them the registration form and all the details for the course but then yeah they're then in addition I have a Facebook group well we now have and I started the Facebook group when I ran the first course live at the surgery and obviously we only had a handful of people terms you know I mean there were maybe a dozen people signed up for the Facebook group between the two surgeries because not everybody does Facebook not everybody wants to do Facebook but the numbers have grown we now have nearly 200 members in our Facebook group all following the low carb course and they're really lately it's got really busy and there's so much support within the group you know somebody will say particularly you know as we know with low carb there are some ingredients that we've never really used much before something like psyllium Who'd ever heard of psyllium? But, you know, it's used quite a lot in low carb baking. You can't generally hear buy it in the shops. You've got to send off for it. So, you know, I'm taking that as an example. You know, where can I buy psyllium? And everybody, you know, several people go, oh, I get mine from here. You know, good recommendations or, you know, I've got such and such a vegetable. You know, what can I do with it? Or, you know, I cook this for my supper. You know, it was really delicious. And somebody else will say, oh, that looks lovely. What, what recipe did you use? And it's sort of mutual support. And I've now got people, quite a lot of people, diabetics, yes, pre-diabetics, and lots of them, you know, they're going into remission. They're, I had one lady the other day who posted in our group, and she was quite happy for me to share the information. Her husband had been diabetic for about 12 years, and his HbA1c had never been below 85. Now, that's high. 
was way higher than mine had been when I was diagnosed. She'd nagged him, as you can imagine, you know, because she knew what the consequences were. And he just sort of said, oh, you know, whatever, um, you know, I've got my tablets and went on. Then she got diagnosed last autumn. So she came to the low carb group. And of course, as in many households, it's the woman of the house that does most of the cooking. So she's not going, she's a busy working mother as well. So she's not certainly not going to be cooking loads of different meals. So she's cooking low carb meals now and putting them in front of everybody. Um, so he's eating them. She said, I'm sure he's eating packets of crisps as well on the side. But, you know, she said, well, he's just had an HbA1c done about three weeks ago and it's down to 48 from 85 12 years at 85 and it's down to 48. Okay, 48 is still the top end of pre-diabetic. But as she said, he's still been sneaking packets of crisps and things. So he's not been perfectly low carb stroke keto anyway. Um, but she's, I think it's given him the wake up that he can see that it makes a huge difference. He's also lost, I think she said two and a half stone. Uh, so yeah, huge difference. Yeah. But we've got people on there. We've had people come for arthritis and it can offer. It doesn't work for everybody, but for a lot of them, it does. In fact, we had somebody come to our very first course who came for his diabetes. He had an HbA1c of something like 52, 53, I think. And it went down to 39 in the three months. So straight into non-diabetic range. Um, so he was delighted about that. But he came to the last meeting and he said, can I say another thing? He said, and he's sort of jumping up and down in front of me. He said, um, can I just say, to you? he said, my arthritis, it's just so much better. He said, look, I can move much more easily. He said, I used to have really terrible pain in my shoulders and I had to take really strong antibiotics, you know, not antibiotics, um, painkillers, you know, those really strong ones that are really not very good for you. Uh, and he said, I've more or less been able to give them up. He said, I only take an occasional one now and then. Um, so for all sorts of things, we've had people who've we have one poor lady who'd gone into hospital to have her knee replaced. And the surgeon comes into the ward, she's in the morning, she's ready to go that day to, you know, she's got the gown on and everything. The surgeon comes into the ward doing the pre-op round, you know how they do. And in front of everybody says, oh, he said, no, you're way, way far too overweight. Can't operate on you today. You'll have to go away and lose some weight. In front of everybody, the poor woman was mortified. You do wonder at some of these consultants, don't you? Um, I mean, I could understand why he didn't want to operate, you know, because if you're a very overweight, you know, and general anaesthetic carries a much higher risk of complications. So I totally understand that he didn't want to do the operation, but you do not have to yell it out in front of the entire ward in a loud, booming voice, do you? Anyway, uh, she's come to us. She lost over three stone um, within the space of six months. So she was able to go ahead and, and have her knee surgery. Her surgeon was delighted with her progress. So yeah, we've had people come from arthritis. We've actually got quite a few young women with polycystic ovary syndrome in the group now, because of course that's an insulin thing, isn't it? Um, and one of them, funnily enough, just joined us. She'd, um, she'd had uh, she'd always been overweight and she'd been diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome. She and her partner had been trying for a baby for ages and she sort of gave, she decided she, she'd read up about keto and she thought she would give keto a go. This was sort of about a year or so, well, year and a half ago. So she had given keto a go and three months later, they'd actually already booked to have IVF because say they'd been trying for a long time and she got spontaneously pregnant having done three months keto. So she knows it works. She's got a little boy now, a lovely little boy, who's about seven months old. And, uh, but she said, I've let things slip. 
So she contacted me through Facebook and said, you know, I think I just need to be part of a group and just feel, you know, get back on it because she said, I know it works. Um, so she joined the group and she actually put a post on there. She said, I want because I generally put a welcome to the group so and so whenever somebody joins. And she said she made did a post and said, I just wanted to actually introduce myself properly and say you know I've had polycystic ovarian and I tried keto and I've got that's lovely for boy etc so she's just to encourage others of you that you know it can work and um I'd had another funnily enough only later that week I think um had another uh young woman again with small children saying to me you know I know I should do it and I know it works for me and I know it's good but you know it's, it's difficult because I've got the children and I need to cook give them carbs you know and I said no you don't need to give them carbs you know you the children will thrive on low carb and you know if you can bring them up low carb you're not going to give them the problems you've had because the chances are they've inherited your genes with the predisposition to pre to, to insulin resistance and diabetes and whatnot if you bring them up to eat healthily you'll be doing them a huge Julia, i'm so glad you've said that only she said they all tell me you know that children must have carbs i said i know they do but i said we've got another lady in the group who's not and anyway the following week i think it was the woman with the baby you know the keto baby posted a most lovely picture of him in his high chair his face is covered with tomato sauce and whatnot and she'd they'd had a, a ragu sauce they'd had meat beef and ragu and broccoli and she said he'd absolutely loved it and you could see he had this beaming face and he was covered in tomato sauce she said he needs a bath but apart from that he absolutely loved it and I thought well how fantastic yeah give kids a lovely healthy diet you know they'll thrive on it we've got a lady in our group who whose baby she's coming up for a year now but since she started eating she's been giving her low carb foods and now they try and give her something with carbs in and she just spits it out and throws it away give her the vegetables and the meat and she's yeah. happy and you give her something else and she has a tantrum <laughs> So it's quite funny because I get these little videos. She sends me videos. Yeah. So it's lovely. I had another lady who joined a couple of months ago now, um, but she had uh, two children, both of them on the autistic spectrum, one of them with a full diagnosis of autism, the other one sort of on the spectrum. Um, and again, I said to her, well, it's actually interesting you should say that. And about the low carb, she said, you know, she's a single mom, I think. And, um, so I said, you know, that can actually have a really beneficial effect um, on behavior. I said, obviously, you know, it's not going to cure their autism. You know, we're not talking about that, but it can in a lot of instances. So, again, I gave her links. Diet Doctor's very good. The Diet Doctor website, uh, sort of personal stories of this sort of thing. So I sent her the link for that. And she said, you know, can we all join the, the Facebook group? So I said, yeah, by all means you can. So they've all three of them joined the Facebook group. So they're doing it as a family. Because so I said the other thing, I know it can be difficult with children with autism, get they like routine and they like the things they like and it can be very difficult introducing new foods but you know I said I think if you look at some of the stories on the diet doctor site for instance where you know they've worked together because I think if you involve them in it and involve them in the food preparation and you make it something an interesting thing that you're going to do together there's all sorts of ways that you can get around that you don't just plonk a piece of broccoli in front of them and say eat this but you can do it as a family project. You know, there are ways that you can get around this and sort of help at least to, to ease the situation and perhaps gradually bring them into it. 
So, yeah, I mean, there are just so many, but well, we'd all at the end of the day, wouldn't we? Everybody would be better. What thing? Sometimes I think one of the questions we get asked is, is there anything for which you wouldn't recommend low carb? Well, not that anybody's discovered yet, frankly. No. You know, it's just a healthier way of eating for everybody, isn't it? You know, there's no way that anybody should be eating carbs, at least not to any great degree. Do you find that sometimes you have to bite your tongue with certain people and not say anything or are you very outspoken and you'll just tell I them as it is? To be, I tend to be outspoken, you know, and of course you can get into rows. It's very easy to get into Twitter rows, isn't it? And particularly with the vegan the vegan group, they're very, you know, what's it? And I sometimes, you know, I'll block a conversation. I don't necessarily block them because at the end of the day, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinions, but I'll mute conversations because you just think there is no point here. You know, you are not going to ever make them see that meat is probably one of the most nutritious things you can have. And to be fair, you know, well, I don't know about veganism. You can certainly be a healthy vegetarian. I, I will accept that, that if you're very careful about how you, sort your diet out and you make sure that you eat the full range of foods so that you're getting all the different amino acids <clears throat> excuse me uh you know you can be a healthy vegetarian i'm not sure you can ever be a healthy vegan because to me if you have got to supplement which you must with the b vitamins because you can't get them from any vegetarian vegetable source you're going to have if you have to supplement that is not a natural human diet because you know 200 years ago there weren't vitamin supplements so you could not have supplemented you know you would have been deficient and got the health associated health problems so if it's a diet or a lifestyle that you have to supplement to me that isn't a natural diet and i would reckon that you would struggle extremely hard i mean i suppose there must be some vegans who do it healthily but and the problem is of course that most don't because they don't they just sort of eat vegan products and let's call often say vegan things are vegan products they aren't just vegan foods it's not just talking about eating broccoli and cauliflower but they'll buy you know or the other thing is sometimes even keto you know there's a lot of keto products that are full of you know they've, they've got a dozen ingredients in them some of which are not things that you could go and buy in a shop they're purely manufactured ingredients they're not necessarily healthy even if they're labeled keto i think you know you can fall into a trap sometimes of sort of seeing a keto bar and some of them are fine i will grant you but quite a few aren't they're really unhealthy um so i would argue that you know a vegan diet and yes fair enough if you don't want to eat meat you don't want to eat meat that's fine you know with me but don't try and change the whole world as they're trying to do and ban meat and getting that because of course the money's behind it isn't it because it yes. suits the manufacturers yeah i was going to say because it's all processed and therefore yeah. you have to buy the food mm. and, and they the can... idea that they might actually manage to ban meat eating and shut down all agriculture is just horrifying to me I mean, we do eat grass-fed meat, largely, not 100%, but for the most part, we do. Um, we can get some locally, not a lot where we are, um, but I do then order it online by mail, and we do buy grass-fed, regenerate, you know, grass-fed uh, grass meat, pasture-raised, because um, regenerative farming. Actually, it was watching the film The Magic Pill, that yes. does until then i mean we were already low carb and all the rest of it and the magic pill i think is a fantastic film from that point of view um but it was really the regenerative farmer talking and about the difference it makes to the environment you know health wise yes obviously it's a better you know vitamin and mineral profile eating grass-fed meat to any other meat but it not 
I'm not necessarily talking even about the worst, you know, some of those American food lots where the cattle are just permanently kept indoors in those dreadful pens, you know, that's inhumane and I, nobody could ever justify that. And of course, it's terrible for the environment, terrible for the animals, terrible for humans, you know, it's not good for anybody. But in this country, you know, all our livestock pretty much, we don't have those big industrial lots. They are raised on grass, but they're often taken inside for the last three or four weeks of their life and fed grains because it fattens them up, etc. And that will alter the meat profile. So, you know, you'll have less omega-3 and more omega-6 fat in them. So, you know, from a human point of view, that's not as good as purely pasture raised. But, you know, we can't all afford pasture fed meat is the other argument. And I say we are lucky in this country, and I'm sure some others as well, that on the whole, the cattle is cattle, sheep or whatever they are, are fairly healthy they're not purely raised on grains they are on grass most of their life um so i wouldn't argue about that um but undoubtedly you know it's, it's the environmental aspect that you know feeding grain to cattle a it's not good for the cattle you can't feed them on grain and it's for and expect them to grow old because they won't they'll get sick uh, just as we get sick um it's not a natural diet for them either their di their digestive system was designed for grass not for grains um you're also of course using land that arguably you could grow food for humans so they're quite right the vegans on that point that you know growing it to to, to grow grains like soy and whatnot to feed to animals is taking up land that could be used to grow crops that humans could you know vegetables or whatever um that's a, a perfectly valid argument but of course, if you have regenerative farming, you haven't got that point because you're not using land that could be used um, for crops for human beings, leave aside grains or otherwise. But, you know, you could grow ordinary vegetables on, on a lot of that sort of land. Um, but most pasture land, a lot of pasture land anyway, you couldn't grow vegetables. Not on it. It's not suitable, yep. you know, uh, particularly if we think about sheep and the uplands and the hills, you know, those craggy hills, you couldn't grow anything on those at all. You know, I grant you some of the plains or some of the meadows that cows are in. Possibly you could grow. But then, you know, you don't know they're subject to flooding, this, that and the other, which are fine for the cows because you move them onto another pasture. It doesn't matter that it floods, but you couldn't grow the vegetables in it because they'd flood and it wouldn't work. So the majority of the land that you're, grows, you're growing the cattle on or the sheep or whatever, you couldn't use for agriculture anyway. Um, yeah. we, we've got a, a, a farm down the road from us. Well, there's quite a few farms around here that have sheep, but one of them, if it rains anything more than a few days, it's the land that the sheep are on are completely underwater mm. completely underwater because the the river floods yeah. so they couldn't grow anything there no but the sheep do fine yeah exactly so but it was the magic pill that made us think hmm actually yes we really should make this effort to to eat more grass fed and to be honest yes of course if you're buying prime steak or chateaubriand or something it's going to cost a fortune if you buy grass fed but if you buy cheap mints it's not that much more than the supermarket mints. Yes, it's slightly more than the very cheapest supermarket mint uh, mints, I will grant you. But it's not that expensive. Um, and, you know, the argument, well, you know, not everybody can afford that. Well, no, they can't. But if you can, then you could be doing it. You yeah. can do your bit. And then, you know, yes, let's campaign for better reasonably priced good quality food for the poorer in society but in the meantime that's no excuse for you not to be doing it and you know if we could make it more widespread 
then, you know, there's some argument that, you know, you can make things sustainable. I watched, there was a brief video the other day. Um, I think it was actually, it's been produced by one of the meat companies, the the, the grass pasture fed meat companies in the UK, pharmacin.com, um, I think they are, or .co.uk. And we do buy some meat from Pharmacin. Um, and they produced a little video the other day called Holy Cow, which is quite good. Not to be confused with the, um, the other one, the Sacred Cow, Sacred isn't it? Cow. Um, yeah. It's shorter than that, but it's called Holy Cow. And again, they talk to a farmer, they talk to um, uh, the slaughterer man, actually, and to the butcher. They talk to various people. And they talk to a man who rears chickens, um, you know, in fact we we're very lucky we buy our eggs locally from a farm that well it's not even a farm actually but it's just a chicken rear but they put their chickens in the same field as the cows so they then forage amongst the cow dung which is really good because of course they get all I mean it sounds a bit vile in some you sort of think hmm, but that's what chickens naturally do and there are all those nice bugs and things that they eat from within the cow dung which is really good so you get these fantastic eggs best eggs we've ever had so we're lucky from that point of view and they were talking to a farmer as I say farmerson in this film uh, that does that the cat the and you could see, you know, he's he, they have these mobile pens because obviously you have to put the chickens inside at night because otherwise the foxes would have a field day. Uh, we healthy foxes all round. Um, but in the morning they're let out and they're in the field with the cows. And he said, you know, he said, I could feed if we all did this. He said, I could feed an area within 10 miles of here with chicken and eggs, you know, by doing this, you know, no problem. So if we all farmed locally, you could do this, you know, you can feed the world sustainably because there are all sorts of areas where, you know, you can grow significant amounts of healthy food. And, you know, we chop down rainforest to, 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 grow, so to grow soy and, you know, we destroy the soils and the vegans go on, you know, they, we're not killing animals. It's cruel, but you know, the number of animals slaughtered when you run oh. a combine harvester over a field. Yes, they're little dormice and not cows, but sorry, don't the dormice count? You know, why should the cow count and not the dormouse? For my, you know, what's the difference? You know, it's, if a life is a life and you care so much about life, don't kid yourself that life isn't being killed. And what about the biodiversity and the soil and the worms and all that biodiversity in the soil that comes with heavy cropping? You know, it, it, it's fallacy to think that you're not killing animals for a start um and yep. as i say you're depleting soils but we're getting off topic here but you know yes so i could get quite, i can get quite worked up on these things and it is easy to get into arguments isn't it with people because you just say how can you be so mindless and you can say this to them and they just don't listen their ears are firmly closed no animals are cows and sheep and we can't kill shaz and how can you eat anything you know that's been alive you know i couldn't do it you know well whatever Fair enough if you don't want to do it. I don't have a problem. That's your choice. Um, but don't force me. Stop. To, yeah. Stop us from know. doing it. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think it's it's really interesting to sort of, you know, in your story, you know, where you, your journey has taken you and you've done this massive shift. Yeah. And now Hugely. you can sort of obviously see this, you know, this this moment of you know of clarity and as you said it made you angry it made you frustrated you know why are we being yeah. fed this particular dogma 
but I think it's yeah. an impressive array of skills that you've had. You know, <laughs> you're talking about, you know, binge watching my videos that I recorded on Zoom, my Google Drive, my, um, you know, my skills in PowerPoint prowess now. Can you just remind, <laughs> the, remind the listeners now, how old are you? If you don't mind sharing, you're, you're... No, I don't mind at all. I'm 69. So this is... This, Almost you know, 70. I'll be 70 next year. Big milestones, you know, but yeah. this isn't, you know, you haven't come at this with, you know, your passion has driven you to acquire, you know, quite quickly um, all these things. Yeah, four years, basically, since I was diagnosed. I mean, all the knowledge I now have and none of it did I have before. You know, I, as I say, I thought I was eating healthily, you know, on my five a day and I didn't go to McDonald's every day or wherever. You know, I thought I was eating healthily. I was quite happy with the way I was. Well, I wasn't happy because I was overweight, but I'd given over worrying about that. But I mean, I'd been over, this is the other thing. I had been overweight my whole life. I didn't just get a bit of middle-aged spread. You know, some people sort of, they're mostly slim all their lives. And then for whatever reason, they start to put on a bit of middle-aged spread, as we often call it. Um, hormones come into it as well, particularly if you're a woman, of course. Um, but yeah, I'd been, I was the overweight. I mean, when I was a kid in the 50s, Children weren't overweight, largely. They are now. I mean, if you go to any playground and look around, half the kids are overweight. But when I was at school, they weren't. Um, and, you know, I was the one fat kid that nobody wanted on their team because, you know, you can't run and they don't want you on their team. So you're the one left last when, you know, they picked the teacher picks two team captains, don't they? And the team captains pick the team. And I was the one left there that nobody wanted, um, yeah, which me, put me, me off. Too. <laughs> yeah, put me off exercise for life. And then I went to boarding school and we had a very strict gym mistress. And, you know, you were expected to leap over the horse and all that sort of thing. And I got a lovely gym report one term that she said Elizabeth could attack the apparatus with a little more vigor <laughs> actually elizabeth didn't attack the apparatus with any sort of anything she didn't attack apparatus full stop there was no way i was going climbing a rope the idea that i could i was going to say rope, climbing a rope nowhere. <laughs> all those big ladders i mean our gym had all these vertical ladders all along real high high ladders up a wall and you were supposed to be able to climb though i could get to about rung two and then i'd drop off um, so no i was and i think that's unfortunately put me off exercise for life i still don't exercise as much as i should and exercise is so important and i know it is and and I sort of impress upon everybody on the course how important it is not for losing weight. It is not a weight loss tool. Short, short of you running marathons every day, in which case, yes, you will burn off a lot of calories. But otherwise, you are not going to be burning off that fat. Um, but it is so important, uh, not just for building muscles. And we're not talking about bodybuilding here, but just, you know, decent muscles that function, you know, so you can lift something reasonably heavy without doing your back in or whatever. Um, but also for building bone density, which, again, for women in particular who are more subject to osteoporosis. So I do know the importance of it. And yet I still struggle. And I'm sure it's that thing from childhood of being told, you know, that you can't do it. You know, you're no good. But it shows that you're real and, you know, you know, as you do, you know the importance of it, but where you can work on those things yeah. successfully, such as, you know, change this, eat this, don't eat this, substitute this, you know, yeah. these are the tools. But, you know, we can, as long as we're doing at least 90%, 80% well, then we're, then we're doing okay. Yeah, and I think it's important. Is... Sorry, go on. I was just going to get you to share with the listeners perhaps what your normal eating day would look like 
Right. Okay. Well, I don't have breakfast. Funnily enough, I never used to have breakfast when I lived on my own previously, um, before I shared the house with my sister. Um, I didn't really have breakfast much. And then when I came here, she did have breakfast. And so I started having breakfast sort of really because we both sat at the breakfast bar and had breakfast together, you know, a sociable thing to do. So I sort of had breakfast. Um, but then when I was, when I started, and when I first started doing the eight week blood sugar diet, I did, and I would just have something very, so I'd have some like a slice of ham and a fried egg with the very minimal amount of oil on it and and um, a few mushrooms for example that would be what I would have for breakfast but then once I transition to low carb and I eat now low carb I don't have breakfast I have one really strong cup of espresso coffee having lived in Italy for 12 years I developed a taste for really strong espresso coffee so I have a cup of espresso coffee with two teaspoonfuls of double cream in it or heavy cream that's also known as um that's breakfast if you want to call it breakfast I also quite often eat a Brazil nut because a Brazil nut will give you all the selenium you need for a day so I will have my coffee and one Brazil nut I don't eat lots because you know nuts are one of those things that can become addictive and they can impede your weight loss and, and weight maintenance as well if you go stuff yourself on nuts you know they're healthy yes but you know if you stuff yourself with a whole bag of nuts you're not going to, you know, you don't wonder if you start to add on a pound or two. Uh, but one Brazil nut's a brilliant way to go. So that's bre breakfast, basically. Um, lunch, sometimes I don't have it at all. Um, and I just have one main meal a day. I have taken to having my lunch really late, partly because at the beginning of lockdown, um, my daughter came to stay with us because she didn't want to be stuck on her own in a London flat entirely alone for the whole of lockdown. So just before it started, she came to live with us. So there were three of us. And we discovered that the poor artisan cheesemakers were suffering because, of course, these high end cheesemakers that supply all the high end restaurants, because all the restaurants closed, they had all this wonderful cheese that they needed to get rid of. So they were advertising everywhere and selling it and sending it out retail you know to anybody who could buy these wonderful cheeses so we helped the artisan cheese market um by <laughs> buying lots of wonderful cheeses and not surprisingly you know cheese again you know it's low carbon it's fine but you know if you and nobody else in the house likes blue neither my sister nor my daughter like blue so you know you you get an assortment you know you buy their assorted thing of cheese and you know you get a 300 gram pack of blue cheese and in two days I've eaten my way through the whole lot because once I start on it I can't stop so you know it's no wonder that I crept up. I crept up in the end nearly half a stone I'd I'd put on purely just and also because there were three of us in the house we were all working from home so I'm working on the ground floor daughters on the middle floor and sisters on the top floor all you know furloughed working from home and um, but we'd sort of congregate at about four o'clock because, you know, you do need a bit of a break in the middle of a long day working. And we'd congregate about four o'clock and we'd all have a bit of a snack, albeit a low carb snack. You know, we wouldn't have carbs, but, you know, it'd be a healthy snack. But snack at the end of the day, you know, is there a, such a thing as a healthy snack? Arguably not. Um, so, you know, that had got become a bit of a habit. So the weight crept up. And when I crept up, when I hit a sort of certain mark, I stood on the scales one day and it was 10 stone 13. And I thought, no, this just is not happening. I am not doing this. And I decided to cut back. So I stopped buying cheese. I, we keep cheddar in the house because it's useful to grate into an omelette or shove on the top of some veg or whatever. So we do keep cheddar, but I don't generally sit down and eat cheddar and crackers or whatever. Um, and I 
buy a, a, a very small, I will go to the cheese counter and get them to cut a really small, less than a hundred gram piece of blue cheese every now and then and treat myself to it, but put purposefully a small piece that I cannot overeat. Um, but generally I just week to week, I don't buy the cheese because I know if I do, I will eat it. So I don't buy that. But the other thing I did was put back my lunch because normally I used to, I had lunch about one o'clock, one, half past one, something like that. I've pushed it back and I generally don't eat my lunch till half past three, four o'clock. But if you don't eat lunch till half past three, four o'clock, you've automatically cut out the four o'clock snack because you're having whatever you're having then. Um, and then I do have my evening meal. We generally eat together about quarter past half past seven. And that is our main meal of the day. Um, but I will have my lunch at half past three and I will have something like, for instance, I might cook, um, let's say a couple of rashers of bacon. I might have some broccoli, which I'll part cook in the microwave and then finish frying off in the frying pan um, and add a couple of fried eggs. So I might have that for lunch. Um, I might open a tin of salmon because I quite like a tin of salmon. Um, and I buy the one with the little bones in it because that increases the calcium. I don't buy the boneless one. Um, I just drain it off. The cat loves the water that comes out of the tin. So he's happy. Um, I have the salmon and I mix it with a little bit, like a teaspoonful of full fat Greek yogurt and some lemon juice. Um, sometimes I'll put a bit of green veg with it. Sometimes I'll just literally, I'll eat that. Um, I might have a low carb cracker with it, a homemade one or something. Um, but mostly not. I'll just literally eat the bowl full of the, the salmon. Um, and I might just finish off by having something like I make like everybody's made cornflake cakes and Rice Krispie cakes when we were kids. And I do the same thing with dark chocolate and coconut flakes. Wonderful. 85 percent chocolate melted. I do about 80 grams of the chocolate and stir in between 100 and 120 grams of toasted coconut flakes. Um, I buy mine ready toasted because I'm lazy. Otherwise, you can buy them plain and just shove them in the oven for five, 10 minutes at about 170 until they're just going golden. You don't want them too dark. Um, and then, you know, if you were making cornflake cakes, you know, you have to keep stirring and stirring and stirring until it's all coated. And then I said I bought myself a mini silicone muffin tin, silicone mini muffin tin. Brilliant. Well, I bought a muffin tin and a mini muffin tin and I do them in spoonfuls into the mini muffin tin, shove them in the fridge. And that that amount sort of 80 grams of chocolate and about 100, 120 grams of, corn, of um, coconut flakes makes uh, one tray of 20 mini muffins shove them in the fridge to go cold and then you can quickly pop them out bung them in a plastic sort of tupperware type container and bung them in the fridge so that you know if you are given to have we talked about snacking you know if you go those that will be the sort of thing when we were having our afternoon snacks i would have one of those so i'm not having goodness knows what as a snack because they're low carb you know it's not going to disastrously wreck your progress um so i might have one of those but in a sense as part of my lunch not as a separate snack so I'll finish off by that sort of little sweet thing. Um, so that's lunch. I mean, it could be all sorts of other things. I might cook an omelette, for instance, with a bit of grated cheese in it, on it. Or I might cook some mushrooms and have a mushroom omelette. That's sort of typically lunch for me. Um, I mean, I might do a salad. I might, particularly if we say got something left over. I don't know if you had some chicken breast left over. I might just pan fr from having done a whole roast chicken. And we tend to eat the legs. So that's the bit we really like. And you're left with all the chicken breast. Um, so we either turn it into a coronation chicken or I might just sort of pan fry a bit of that off. Or I might, for instance, get a packet, ready made packet of smoked mackerel fillets, um, make up a big bowl of a mixed salad, plenty of olive oil on it and shove the flake up the 
the smoked mackerel into it. So those are the sorts of things that I would have for lunch. And then our evening meal is basically meat and veg, meat or fish. We'll eat fish as well. Um, that can be a steak and salad. It might be uh, lamb chops. I mean, for instance, last night we had lamb chops. Um, lamb chops, which we had with, what did we have it with? Oh, I know, asparagus, which we cut up into quite small pieces. We didn't use the whole stalk. We cut them up into smaller pieces and pan fried with some spices. Can't remember on that which spices because my sister did that bit. Um, and we had roasted carrots. We don't often have carrots as a vegetable, I have to say. We do use carrots if we're cooking a stew or a casserole or something, but they are quite carby. So we don't tend to eat them as a vegetable, but we did yesterday um, and they we roasted them. The recipe was for roasting them with honey, but we didn't have the honey, partly because in any case, we would find that sickly sweet these days, putting honey on carrots because they're already sweet enough. Um, but we did roast them. I think probably she roasted them in olive oil. And then uh, you finish it off with topped it with crumbled feta and toasted hazelnuts, which was really nice. So we had the lamb chops with the carrots with the feta because the lamb chops weren't very big either. So we thought, well, we could do with a bit extra protein in there. So a bit of feta on top will work and add that on. Um, and as I say, the asparagus. Um, what are we having tonight? We're having sausages, high meat content sausages this evening. And I'm going to make, because we've got the rest of the feta, I'm making pea and feta fritters. Peas are again, something that we don't eat very often because again, they tend to be fairly high in carbs. So they're not a common vegetable. So to have two carby vegetables, two nights running is probably not something that we normally do actually. Um, but yeah, so that's that's what we that's what our meal is. I will make salmon fish cakes. You can just take salmon fillets, chop them up really finely with a knife. Um, don't blitz them, or if you do blitz them, blitz them just a couple of pulses. You do not want it to go to a complete mush. You want it in bits. And then you chop up, finely chop up fresh ginger, fresh lemongrass and fresh coriander. Chop lots of that up. Chop, finely chop your... Um, salmon and mix it all together a bit of salt and pepper we have started using wild salmon only we used to have farmed salmon but again there are such big question marks over farmed salmon well there are starting to be question marks over wild salmon actually and it being overfished but whatever we do still make it with wild salmon but we did find the first time we did it with wild salmon we found it was rather dry and didn't work as fish cakes we felt they dried out a bit but what I've done is so I'd stir in a teaspoonful of coconut oil which gives it moisture throughout and works well with the taste because of the lemongrass and the the ginger and stuff so it works really well um and then you just form it basically use one fillet per person plus you know the lemongrass and stuff and you just squeeze it together in your hand and it will hold together to make a sort of burger shape and you just pan fry it in a dry frying pan um, and we'll have that with maybe a homemade, homemade coleslaw we make a coleslaw with red cabbage a bit of grated carrot uh, again we don't use a lot of carrot but it gives it a bit of color a bit of difference um, with fresh ginger lime zest and lime juice and olive oil um, to make a coleslaw that isn't a coleslaw with a creamy dressing um, so we might do do those i'm just wondering when your cookbook is coming out <laughs> well some of the some of the recipes we do to be fair are sort of picked, in fact that's a recipe from jamie oliver and it wasn't oh, even a low-carb cookbook it was jamie oh, okay. oliver's five ingredients because again it's really easy you know it's just the salmon and the herbs and stuff 
it is topped with a spoonful of chili jam and we do use the chili jam and i know chili jam is full of sugar but we buy Tracklebunch chili jam, which is really strong. Or you could make your own, I suppose, which is really hot. So we put less than half a teaspoonful each. And what you do is when, the, when they're cooked, we put sort of like this half teaspoonful of chili jam on top. You put a splash of water in the pan, flip the burgers over and zhuzh it round so that you just get this little bit of chili sauce. Um, I mean, I guess you could do your own just with the chili and not bother with it. But, you know, we eat so few carbs that, you know, and if you're not a total adult and it's not going to start your obviously if you're somebody that's going to trigger your cravings, then obviously don't use it. But it doesn't trigger us. We just aren't tempted by carbs generally. And it's going to be so few. Have you do you track like do you track your like how many grams or of what you're eating? I don't. I don't. I mean, when I first when I first started doing the blood sugar, I counted calories because obviously I was doing 800 calories a day. So I was looking at the calories and because I was cutting out the starchy carbohydrates, you know, at the end of the day, there's not much meat of anything. So but at one, I have variously sort of put I've used my fitness pal and tracked the, the carbs. But, you know, I, I personally don't bother. I do think it's a personal thing as to whether you do or don't. I honestly, I never eat bread, rice, pasta and potatoes ever or sweet potatoes, whatever. I just don't. End of. I haven't eaten pasta. When I say I never eat bread, we go to a very posh fine dining restaurant occasionally, maybe six times a year. And they do their own homemade bread. And I will have the bread roll when I go there. But, you know, that's six times a year. The rest of the time, I wouldn't just go to any old restaurant and eat bread because we're eating out. And I don't, well, we make low carb bread at home and I have that. Again. But even then, you know, I'll batch, bake a batch of nine low carb rolls and those will last us three weeks between the two of us. So you can tell how often we're eating low carb bread even, you know, I just don't eat it. So if you're not eating any of those, and I said, yes, I said, Tonight we're having the pea and feta fritters and yesterday we had carrot. But honestly, that is anomalous. Um, we generally eat green vegetables. We do eat green beans. But, you know, I eat cabbage, I eat spinach, I eat broccoli, spears. I eat, we have asparagus, um, we have peppers, we have mushrooms, we have some celeriac. Um, you know, we have green vegetables largely. We do not eat carrots as a side veg and we don't eat, very rarely eat pulses. Again, occasionally I'll have some lentils. I never eat beans. I just don't eat beans because lentils are generally lower carb than beans are. So I do occasionally have lentils, but like once a month at most. So if I'm not eating any of those things, what's the point of tracking? You know, I'm just never going to get occasionally I do just out of pure interest, partly because somebody maybe within the group will say, you know, how many were. And I still think, well, OK, let's put in what I had yesterday and see what it comes to. And I would say I probably have between 20 and 30 grams of carb a day. I mean, if I had 50 grams, that would really be huge for me. I just, you know, that would be once it might be, I don't know, because we did go to a restaurant and, you know, you know, it was fine dining. Actually, fine dining, I think is great for low carb because fine dining, they don't give you platefuls of crisps. You know, if there's a potato included, you know, it's two handmade fried crisps nicely poised on top. You know, that's not going to wreck anybody's diet, is it? You know, one potato crisp. Um, or we did what's become popular during lockdown is the, these posh chefs with their po posh upmarket restaurants have done home delivery kits where it's part cooked and you finish off the cooking and they'll tell you how to put it on the plate so that it's presented like fine dining cooking. And we did one the other week from Tommy Banks. And we picked the lowest carb option that we could. 
And it did come with what I can't remember what they call it as a potato thing. But basically, it's very thin layers of potato cooked in butter. And it's sort of crisp on the outside and all buttery on the inside. But these were really tiny. They were like about couple of inches long five six centimeters long and possibly an inch wide and an inch high it was not a vast amount of potato and I did eat that we had had another of these posh make meals a couple a couple of months previously when my daughter was still here um and that came with potato too and we thought we'd have a little bit of it because you know it's once in a blue moon but we tasted it and although it was supposed to be a posh they weren't mm -hmm. worth having the carbs for so we binned them we didn't eat the potatoes and um, we ate the other stuff but binned the potatoes but these Tommy Banks ones <laughs> really were to die for they were absolutely delicious um, I ate them and enjoyed them and I did test my blood glucose levels which I don't normally I have a monitor but I don't bother testing because at the end of the day if you don't eat any carbs your blood glucose ain't going to go up and my HbA1c is still well it's 33 at the last count I had it done three weeks ago and it was 33 so you know why would I bother count testing because it just doesn't go up but if I do something like that you know we do either go out to this posh restaurant or we have one of these home delivery things which does include and I did eat the dessert in it as well which was like a chocolate mousse type thing um, but actually it was quite a tight it was a very dark chocolate and it wasn't overly sweet which was because often the fine dining well, you know the top end stuff and it would of course have cream and butter in it and stuff it wouldn't be made with other nasties so I did it and I tested my blood glucose and my blood glucose didn't go above six point one so I was really thrilled with that um even having eaten those things but I do that very you know those are really rare occasions day to day I just don't eat those things I do make a carrot and apple cake which is really nice which I took from the Caldese's cookbook you know um, Giancarlo and Katie mm -hmm. Caldese's cookbooks it was their second one um they suggest they suggest a sort of frosted topping for the cake and then you put um, pecans on top well frosted topping's fine if you're cooking that cake for some a, a gathering where everybody's going to eat a slice and it's going to go is fine but otherwise if you're going to make the cake purely for yourself and you're going to cut it into slices and store it having the topping on top is messy so I don't do the topping um, what I do is I bake the cake as a loaf or, or and or I make a few mini muffins as well from it I bung some in a mini muffin tin from the mix um but instead of putting the the topping and the nuts on what i do is i i use walnuts rather than pecans but you could use either and i chop those up about 50 to 70 grams of it and shove it in the mix because actually i quite like a carrot cake with the crunch of the nuts in it and i think it improves it and i add some ground ginger to it as well as the mixed spice but it's a really nice cake and you're using one and a half apples in a cake that i cut up between the cake and the muffins makes about 20 portions so you know the amount of apple that you're going to have in any one piece of cake is minimal because uh, i wouldn't dream of sitting down and eating an apple you know far too many carbs uh, for me personally um but you know what's the that tiny amount of apple in an apple cake and then i have that quite often after my evening meal i'll have a slice of the carrot and apple cake with a nice big dollop of full fat creme fraiche on it because you want something like the creme fraiche or sour cream i suppose would equally go with it um because that's typical too of a carrot i mean a traditional carrot cake you put that frosted dressing on that isn't it's not a standard butter cream is it it is a sort of slightly soured uh, topic you know sort of slightly um thing so yeah but i find it works just well or even just with yogurt would work if i've run out of creme fraiche i have a dollop of full fat yogurt on it instead works fine so yeah i just don't eat the carbs so i don't do the tracking right so before we finish up um how can people find out about you get in contact with you where can they where can they contact you 
they can follow me on Twitter because I, 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 I've never thought I would become a Twitter addict, but I've become, I don't follow trends and things, but I do tweet and I do follow lots of people on there because actually, of course, people who post interesting low carb papers and things often put the link to them on Twitter. It's a really good place to find the out, you know, how, where else are you going to find the out the information? You know, it's often somebody will post it on there so they can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Elizabeth Lepla. My surname's a complicated one. Uh, it's capital L E capital P L A. It's got a capital P in the middle, but no gap. People are prone to put a gap in the middle of it, make it Lepla. Um, but it's Elizabeth at uh, Elizabeth Lepla. I'm on Twitter. Um, I don't, I do have my Facebook group, but I don't use my personal Facebook page. There's no point in giving you my Facebook because I don't post on my personal Facebook page. I only post within our low carb group. Um, people can email me. Um, they could email me at the email address I use for our group, which is Basingstoke Low Carb, all written as one word. Basingstoke is B for Bertie, A, S for sugar, I N G, S for sugar, T. O-K-E, and then low carb, all written as one word, at gmail.com. So they can always get in touch with me through that. And we do let other people join our group, by the way. We did, we do actually, because I have put on my own business website, you know, I said I make miniature furniture, so I have my own website for my own business. Um, and I've actually put a page on there explaining the work I do with the PHC and my own remission of type 2 diabetes. And I had one of my Dolls House clients contact me one day and sort of said, could I join your low carb group? And she's in the States. So I said, yes, why not? Maybe can't do the Zoom meetings because it won't work with the time zones. But um, yeah, by all means, join the Facebook group. We'd like to leave, obviously, your wealth of knowledge. If you can distill that into three top tips, please. I suppose the very basic one is to say cut out those starchy carbohydrates. So that's the bread, rice, pasta, potatoes and cereals. If you cut those out, really, you've uh, sugar, obviously, um, I suppose I should have added sugar in there as well. So sugar and starchy carbohydrates. Um, if you've cut those out, really, you can eat anything else pretty much. Um, you'll find your own way of things that suit you, things that don't. Um, but make that a good first start. Um, exercise, yes, is also important. Um, so do think about exercise and the when you eat can also be important. I hadn't realized how much difference when you eat can make. Like, as I said, you know, I got my half stone off by pushing my lunch back to half past three in the afternoon. And that half stone between that and the fact that I was cutting out that little mini snack. But as I would said, the mini snack would only have been something like one of those little coconut bites. It wouldn't have been goodness knows what. But cutting that out. So I have two meals. Um, and I have them within a, a limited window. So let's say between three o'clock and half past seven in the evening. So it's quite a short window. Um, I have to confess another of my confessions um, that I am a midnight snacker and I still haven't managed to give up my midnight snack. I'm I know, shock horror. I can feel this going on. And I tell everybody, you know, the last thing you must do is, you know, you must not eat late at night. It is seriously bad for you, um, you know, and not good. And I know all the research, but, you know, as you said, I'm human. I'm not, <laughs> say, I often work. We will watch television usually in the evening from about eight till 
10. And then I will come back downstairs and work again. I may work till midnight or one o'clock. So when I go back upstairs and I've got into this habit of just having, and it isn't hunger, I, you know, it isn't. I'm Well, occasionally it is, particularly if, for instance, we'd had a really light supper, you know, we'd had a bit of white fish and a few veggies it's not a hugely satisfying supper so you know then I might be hungry but largely no it isn't hungry I've just got into the habit of unwinding sitting down on our kitchen sofa and doing the crossword at midnight because the new one flicks up on at midnight so I'll do the crossword and eat I don't know a bit of yogurt and some seeds you know again it's not a madly high carb thing but it's something I shouldn't eat at midnight and I know that I would improve my own health because I, again, I'm not saying I'm perfect. Um, you know, I don't take, I've come off all my blood pressure. Med- no, not all the blood pressure medications. I'm on a very minimal dose of blood pressure medication. I've come all, off all my triglycerides or all my um, cholesterol medication. I was on a statin and everything. I've come off all of those, but I do still have slightly raised high triglyc- uh, triglycerides. I have a history of hypertriglyceridemia and they're a bit high. And obviously that midnight snacking is not doing it any good and I should exercise more. So, you know, but I'm not perfect. <laughs> I'm not a saint. Um, but, you know, within the course, I will give people the right information because I think it's important that you give people your knowledge. Albeit you confess, you know, I don't do it, but I can promise you that this is the best information I can give you. This is what I believe to be true and know to be true. Do I do it? No, I'm afraid I don't. I'm not a saint. I'm trying, but, you know, I'm not a saint. So, you know, if you're not perfect, but every change you make, that's another thing I think. You ask for three every single change you make is a positive so you know if you find it a real struggle to begin with maybe just change your breakfast stop having that cereal and toast and fruit juice and have a healthy breakfast don't worry about the rest of the day if you're still eating potatoes and you're still eating you know a bit of pastry don't worry about it for now hopefully you know you can make the transition gradual but every change you make is important And I think the other perhaps important thing is because it isn't a low carb thing, particularly, but it is a health thing. And that is the vegetable oils. They are so damaging. Um, And, you know, I make that an important part of the low carb because, yes, it isn't a carb. You know, whether you eat rapeseed oil or olive oil isn't going to make the blindest bit of difference to the amount of carbs you have. um, But it is going to make a big difference to your health. Yeah, massive. So it's, it's really important. Yeah. Well, I think that sort of analysis is that we will forgive you for staying up so late (laughs) and snacking. That in itself is not good for you either. The earlier you go to bed, the better. Get to bed. Oh, I'm going to call the low-carb police on you. They're going to take you away in handcuffs, young lady. Um, But in essence, you know, those checks and balances, you have put your yeah. diabetes in remission so we will forgive you for that um late night <laughs> snack of yogurt and, and nuts but um yeah on all those checks and balances you should be immensely proud not only for your own personal journey but the gift that you are sharing with so many in your community and i think that grassroots level action which you know is envisaged by the public health collaboration and we you know we thank sam for his directorship and leadership and the stewardship that he has of of that great charity so um yeah thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today well thank you for inviting me it's been a real pleasure thank you great well louise (laughs) 
Have you noticed, listeners, how Louise always starts with, well, Jackie, so I thought I'd get in there first and say, well, Louise. (laughs) One of the things that I thought was really, really important to mention is how when Liz was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, how she was I, I think going back, so when she was in that pre-diabetic stage and she was told the standard of care and what to do and the things, the guidelines to follow, and she did it. For the most part, she did it. And her diabetes just got out of control. And and so when she had that type 2 diabetes um, diagnosis, she realised that what she was doing wasn't working. She had to do something differently. So she then um, remembered that she'd listened to Dr. Michael Mosley or heard him on the TV and started investigating. It must be so frustrating, you know, for a lot of those patients where her GP said, you know, you're not doing this right. But she said, well, I am eating healthfully. I am eating, you know, my bread, my jacket potatoes, you know, my healthy whole grains, low fat yogurts you know, low fat, you know, this, that, margarine and all that sort of stuff. And he must feel this, you know, incredible um, sort of frustration. You know, the fact that not to be called out, you know, the doctor thinks I'm not doing this right, but I am. I am following the national guidelines. I am eating, you know, to the, the healthy plate guidelines. But yet here I am, a frank type 2 diabetic. What am I doing wrong? But it must be then incredibly, you know, again, frustrating for the patient to be, well, we're going to follow the standard care. Here's your metformin and off you go. Go to the classes, the the diabetes education classes and count your carbs. And here are your, you know, your allocations for um, for carbs. And I need to get, you know, more diabetic and sicker. And this is this is something's wrong where the standard of care doesn't give you that flexibility to include carbohydrate restriction. And I think that's where, you know, we had Doug Reynolds on and where he was talking about the Society for Metabolic Health Practitioners and being you know, able to really validate and verify and come up with a consensus that standard of care can include, you know, prescribing carbohydrate restriction safely and therapeutically. So mm. that's for one thing, that's that's from the doctor's side. But I think for, for Liz, this is her, her lived experience. You know, her lived experience is success, not using the standard of care. And it's yeah. just that, you know, that black swan. You know, the fact is here's this, not this, you know, this one person who's the best fit model approach is to be able to, use an alternate therapy such as you know the low carb you know carbohydrate restriction and have wonderful success which informs now her her next chapter her next phase of her career is really this this advocacy through the phc uk Mm. so listeners will remember episode 10 with sam felton and um yeah and and the wonderful charity work that they're doing yes and it is it's obviously growing because there's more and more people um, within the ambassadors that are managing to get into these doctor's surgeries and 
just help inform people that there is another way because I think that's the problem. It's not saying that we all have to do it because we don't. You can choose. As as you know, in my family that, you know, I, my husband's type 2 diabetic and he chooses not to do it, but he knows. He knows that there is another way. And at some point he might get fed up getting sicker and he might choose to make a choice, to, you know, to change. And then again, he might not knowing him. But um, Jackie and I, as listeners will know, we, we both low carb. We're both low carb keto differently. It doesn't have to be this prescriptive, you know, stick to your 20 grams. And that's where the good thing is that with Liz, you know, being this example to sort of say, well, here's a range of options for you. And in her groups that she just presents these options as they are. And she had a range of success and mostly she you knows she was successful with her with her groups, as she said, about reversing or, you know, improving. Any improvement is better than like no improvement. And certainly it doesn't have to be that sort of, you know, chronic, um, chronic progressive um, disease that, you know, certainly that's what they're told from the outset. Choose, you know, the, the choice, the power is in the choice to choose differently. And, um, yeah, and you can choose to be able to put your, your type 2 diabetes into remission, which is a wonderful opportunity and save your toes, as you said. So, you know, yeah. don't don't have your bread, don't have your toast, but you can save your toes. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. And I was going to say that for some people, because there might be listeners out there thinking I'm doing this and I'm not seeing any improvement, and depending on how long this has been going on and what other underlying health conditions there are this could take years so you do have to be really focused on on your health and where you want to get to and just keep going keep going keep going I hate that keep whatever and carry on but you know the keto dude said keep on keep what what did they they said keep calm keto on keep keep calm keto on yeah I hate all that but but it's true. You just have to keep going. And for some people, they see um, results really quickly. I mean, Liz managed to reverse her type 2 diabetes in three months. And for others, it might take three years. But it's still whatever improvement you're making, whether you're cutting from 300 carbs down to 150, which is just just within the low carb area, you're still going to be improving what would otherwise be happening i think that's a fabulous point because people seem to forget that you know that as chronic and progressive as it was to get you that diagnosis you know the lead up to that could have been over as you said you know 10 15 20 years to get to obviously that particular diagnostic range and then to expect within you know overnight success it doesn't quite happen that way it has to be it's a it's a chronic um, you know, or it's a progressive undoing of all that chronic inflammation that has led up to that particular diagnosis. So you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, keep calm and keto on is really, you know, as, as much as you don't like that, it's just basically the little train that could, you just have to keep, keep chugging along with it and, um, you know, have, keep the faith to keep going on. But even still, you know, within our journeys, our respective journeys, we've had our ups and downs and, you know, we take two steps back, one step forward. So it certainly is a lifestyle, you know, that this becomes a lifestyle approach. 
So it's not an overnight success. You start and you finish. Yeah, it's a journey. Absolutely. Constant journey. So where can the listeners journey to those show notes, Jackie? So the show notes will be at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 047. Well, Jackie, that brings us to the end of episode 47. So thank you for, you know, your little poking fun at me. I feel a bit hurt now. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to cry off in the corner and wait until episode 48. So yeah. thanks, Jackie. See you next time. Hey, Jackie. You know, when you were starting out with keto, you probably had loads of questions. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Don't you wish you just had someone who was able to give you just the simple answers to all those questions about macros, electrolytes, reading nutrition labels and sweetness? Absolutely, yeah. Well, we want to have an episode where you, dear listener, can AMA, which stands for Ask Me Anything. You'll be able to ask us anything using a Fabulously Keto webpage where there is a contact form and you could submit your questions, which we will answer on these episodes. The contact page is fabulouslyketo.com forward slash AMA. Whether you're just starting out or experienced in your journey, we will happily answer your questions. You don't have to be new to keto, so if you're further along in your journey and have questions on being stuck on a plateau or a stall, then feel free to submit your questions as well. Just head over to www.fabulouslyketo.com forward slash AMA. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Follow us on social media. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto One. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know that you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto One and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories, and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. Mm-hmm.